there are certain things in life that you should do together for your children and medical care and medical treatment and their education are, are at the top of that list. In my opinion. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today we're excited to welcome Adam Dietrich to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. After graduating from law school in 2008, Adam was licensed to practice law in Texas in 2009. Adam is board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization and practices exclusive family law, including child custody and divorce cases. He's a partner at Jenkins and Cayman in Conroe, Texas. Adam is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Law Specialists and serves on the State Bar of Texas Family Law Section Council. He's authored and presented many continuing education presentations, as well as directed courses in continuing legal education. Adam has served on his local school board and numerous other philanthropic ventures. He's been married to his wife, Christy, for 16 years, and they have three amazing children. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ellie. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? So, um, like you said, I, uh, I graduated from college. Um, I went to San Diego State University, graduated from there with a psychology degree, uh, went straight into uh, the workforce. I was a law clerk working for an attorney uh, that practiced uh, criminal law, excuse me, and um, worked for him for about five years or so, and then went to law school. And about three years in, I thought to myself, you know, I think I can do this as well as some of these people in this courtroom. And so that's kind of what me to go to law school uh, and then went off to law school in Michigan, came back and started practicing, got licensed in 09. So how would you describe your current practice? Uh, we practice at my firm exclusively family law. Um, we have uh, three offices throughout the Houston area. I um, I run the Conroe office and um, we practice, uh, like I said, just family law, all, all elements of it, uh, divorce, child custody, uh, divorcements, uh, you name it. So, uh, but that that's our, our, our only uh, area of practice. So I noticed that you used to be on the school board and I'm very intrigued by that because right now school boards, at least where we are, I mean, meetings are insane. People are fighting about everything. Um, Sounds like you may have been pre-COVID on the school board. I'm curious how that experience was. So, well, both. And so it was pre-COVID and then during COVID. And of course, that was wild and crazy in March of 2020 when kids didn't go back to school after spring break. Uh, but I, um, I joined my wife's an educator. Uh, she is uh, in administration now, started off as a history teacher. And, you know, I look back on it now, and it seems like that a lot of my life converged on uh, helping families and children. And so uh, I wanted I wanted to help. I, I had I had the time and, and I decided to be on the school board. It was incredibly rewarding. Uh, we got to do a lot of great things. Got to build some schools. Uh, got to uh, really assist the school district in, in, in uh, providing excellent education uh, in our, our small community here. And so, between the school district and you know, the school board, I should say. Uh, and practicing family law, uh, I really feel like that my life has just kind of converged to helping families and kids. And so it was a very rewarding experience. It was challenging. And, and yes, uh, really trying to, to get caught up very, very quickly during COVID to make sure that we could try to continue kids' education. was uh, It was difficult, but we, we pulled it off pretty well, I think. So today we're going to talk about something that I think a lot of family lawyers assume they 
understand and assume that, oh, that's just the basics and we're going to follow, you know, do what everybody else is doing and what everybody's done forever. And that's specifically related to rights and duties. And I think a lot of lawyers don't realize that we can get into some trouble with rights and duties if we ever want to enforce anything. So why do you think this is such an important topic for family lawyers to think about? So, you know, us as parents, uh, natural parents, uh, have the, the rights to do important things in our kids' lives, make important decisions just by the nature of us being parents. Uh, when when uh, there's a child custody case or a divorce with a child custody case involved in it, those important decisions need to be uh, delineated in, in some fashion such that kids can get the, the help uh, that they need from their parents and they can get important decisions made one way or another. And so... Um, there's a lot of a lot of these rights. We're going to go through some of them here in a little bit, but the you know the important rights, like being able to make sure that your kids uh, get the medical care that they need, uh, or that maybe they don't absolutely need, but it will improve their quality of life. Uh, the right to make important decisions in education, uh, psychological, psychiatric. These things have to be uh, uh, put down on paper, so to speak, so that the parents know uh, who gets to make which decision and how those get made. And we all hope that they uh, are able to get along and, and do it together. But as we know, uh, if that were the case, we probably wouldn't have jobs. And so, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and so setting these, these important, uh, decision-making, uh, abilities is, is, is vitally important. And the, the topic of the paper, uh, that I, I presented on in August and then the topic of our podcast today talks about, how do we do anything uh, when one parent is not doing what they're supposed to be doing? Or they're, they're usurping the authority that the other parent has in making these decisions, uh, important decisions in kids' lives. So you mentioned paper from August. And in case people are listening to this podcast at some unknown time in the future, um, he's referring to a paper that he did at Advanced Family Law in 2022. So if you want more information at the end of this podcast on this topic, you'll be able to go find that in our uh, state bar library. So can you give us a little bit about the history of rights, powers, and duties in Texas? Sure. So uh, uh, very late 60s, the Family Code was, was originally codified, and uh, it's really it set out a um, what, I, what I would consider to be a, a historical uh, thought and perspective on parenting duties. Uh, more of a traditional sense. You have the one parent who basically makes all of the decisions um, and the other parent had a certain duty, she had duty to take care of children uh, and you know, provide them with food, clothing, shelter, things like that. But it was very limited uh, in, in the sharing of rights and duties. And as, as the legislature proceeds on over the next decade, decade and a half or so, um, the idea of joint managing conservatorship comes into being and more of the sharing of the, the decision-making uh, amongst kids and, and all the way up to about 1985, or excuse me, 1989, uh, when uh, the standard possession order was finally codified and, and really gave family law practitioners back then uh, really some, some guideposts to start thinking about what, what it looks like in, in making decisions for kids. And, and later, and later again, in the nineties, it was um, uh, the presumption that parents were going to be joint managing conservators, uh, which exists today, was uh, was codified, and, and, uh, and so and there have been some small iterations since then. But but that really uh, was a turning point in our world when it comes to making decisions for kids. So as we sit here today, what are the rights and duties that a parent generally has? 
So uh, generally, um, parents have uh, rights and duties that, uh, just like you would think, kind of what we talked about already, um, the right to, to uh, receive information from the other parents uh, regarding uh, health, education, and welfare, the right to receive information, the right to confer with the other parents, of access to medical and dental, psychological records, consult with physicians, the school uh, doctors, um, the right to attend school activities, and uh, the right to consent to medical treatment involving an emergency. And these are the rights that, uh, that parents have at all times. So how can conservatorship be that both parties are joint managing or we have sole managing and possessory? How does conservatorship impact rights and duties for parents? Right. And so like we talked about in the um, uh, just a bit ago about joint managing conservatorship, there are certain rights uh, that we'll get into here a little bit that both parents are given if they're appointed joint managing conservators. Uh, and I actually just mentioned some of those rights, but the whole idea, I believe, that, that uh, the legislature had when they enacted uh, the Joint Management Conservatorship Statute was that the sharing of these, these uh, rights and duties is, is impairment and paramount to, uh, to raising children together and to, to help to try to establish a co-parenting relationship such that, uh, uh, the, the, I think, such that the children can see that both parents are involved in their lives and, and have, uh, have a say-so. And I think from a parent's perspective, actually having the, the uh, stated delineated rights um, puts them in a position to be able to say, hey, you know, I, I want to be a part of this process. I want to be a part of deciding whether or not my kiddos' tonsils get taken out or whether or not they get vaccinated. And so I think that that um, iteration of the, the joint managing conservatorship really put parents much more on equal footing than, say, a sole managing conservatorship. Uh, which of course still exists in our Texas law today, but that gives the exclusive right to make these very important decisions uh, to the sole managing conservator and um, away from the other person who we call the possessory conservator. And the possessory conservator uh, will typically have uh, very limited rights uh, to make decisions, uh, but still have a lot of the same rights regarding notification and, and being uh, informed about significant events uh, in their children's lives. So, I know occasionally, I think it's pretty rare, at least from what I've seen, we have a parent that's not appointed as a conservator at all. Usually they've done something pretty awful or they're completely out of the picture and therefore they are not appointed as a conservator. Does that parent retain any rights at all? Well, so the court uh, can can limit a parent's uh, rights and duties. And, and uh, I believe anyway that even if a court doesn't appoint someone a conservator, they could give them some, some limited rights uh, that may... I might change my opinion about that with further research, but I've been of the opinion that uh, that that's the case. And um, I agree with you. Someone has to do something pretty bad not to even have the right to receive information about their kids. And it would be the things that, that you and I would expect, you know, severe drug use, alcohol abuse, domestic violence, things like that. Uh, and I, I, it is very rare, I agree, and I, but I have seen it for sure. So in a typical order... What rights and duties do both parents have at all times? I think I jumped the gun on you on this one just a little bit a while ago, but um, and I talked about a few of them. And so, uh, obviously, uh, parents communicating with each other is vitally important. Uh, and in a, in a good co-parenting relationship, then they would uh, give information back and forth regarding um, significant events involving their child, health, education, and welfare. Uh, I, I mean, I call these just the standard, the standard things that parents should do. Talk, I talk to my wife about my kids schooling all the time. And, uh, and so that, along with the right to confer with the other parent, the right to receive information, right to have access to medical records, dental records, and educational records, 
Uh, and where I see that particular um, uh, right used the most, and maybe you do too, is when uh, we have two parents who don't get along and one parent wants to go to the school and get school records or go to the doctor and get a doctor's records. Um, and so that one I actually see used a lot, um, a lot more than, than some of the others. Talking to doctors, uh, consulting with the school officials, in school activities. And you'll remember probably that that one changed. Uh, and there was used to be a huge fight in my county with five different school districts, uh, whether or not a parent not during their time to go have lunch with their kiddo. And interestingly, we had I had I talked to the the attorneys for all five school districts, and all and, and three of them said I don't care. The parents should be able to come see their kids at school and have lunch with them. The other two did not. And so, but thankfully, the legislature kind of normalized that for all of us uh, and took that fight out of the out of the picture because it was people would spend an, an awful lot of money fighting about that and things like that. And so, I'm glad that uh, that we took care of that too. Uh, the right to be designated as an emergency contact. Um, I see this one probably left in and taken out in sole managing conservatorship cases because, uh, and also the one before that too, because you have someone who has supervised only visits, you don't want them to be exercising outside of what the court has given them. Uh, but but also um, the right to consent to, um, I'm sorry, the right to be designated as an emergency contact. If you have someone who's supervised visits only, well, you don't really want that person to be contacted to come pick up junior because they're not supposed to be doing that anyway. The right to consent to medical and dental and surgical treatment uh, during an emergency, well, that just makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, being able to take your kids to the doctor if they break their arm without having to go talk to the other parent first. Um, and they go that, that goes hand in hand with the other duties uh, that are listed out, the duty to inform the other parent about significant events um, involving health education and welfare. And then, of course, the right to manage uh, a child's estate to the extent that it was created by that person or that person's family. If, uh, if dad starts a 529 fund or his parents do, uh, the grandparents, uh, then someone should have the right to control that, one of the parents. And then we have another breakdown of specific rights and duties for what a parent would do when they have the child during their period of possession. Can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. And, and these are more of the, hey, go be a good parent type duties and, and rights and, and take care of your kiddos. And the right, the duty of care, control, protection, and reasonable discipline of the child, take care of your kids. That's how I, I really do my very best to try to, I, I say, really use the term dumb things down for people, but just speaking plain language. And so um, I, I think that, that that's just being a good parent. You do to support your child and provide them with food, clothing, and shelter. That makes total sense, right? And uh, the right to consent for the child uh, to, med uh, to medical and dental care, not involving an invasive procedure. Now, here we are again with a third different type of a medical right. And uh, this one is, okay, your kid's got a cold. Uh, he needs to go to the doctor and get some medicine. And so, of course, parents should have the duty and the right uh, uh, to do that uh, as well. And so, and the right to direct moral and religious training of the child. I don't really see this one uh, uh, thought about too very often. Uh, I have had some cases where uh, the parents were of two different religions and they were uh, and got so far so they couldn't come to an agreement on how they're going to raise their child. And so they were raising their child with two different religions, two different households. And I think that that's, uh, uh, that's a difficult position for a kid to be in. Uh, I've never really sat down. I've done some, some amicus attorney work and, and, and I've never had that role uh, in talking to children about how they feel about those types of things. But I, I think that I can see that there would be a, a concern uh, with that uh, with that right and kids going in different uh, households, being a different household. 
Yeah, it's been a little while since I saw a fight about that issue, but I think for a lot of people, it's really important. And it can be the reason they split up to begin with was difference in religious views. So then how are they going to deal with that with their child? Absolutely. You know, I saw, I had a, uh, a case where um, the uh, the parties were the dad, they got married and the dad was a um, uh, was an Orthodox Jew and the mom converted to Judaism. And when they got divorced, dad moved towards Christianity and mom stayed uh, as an Orthodox Jew. And so it, it really, it really caused it caused a divorce, quite frankly. And then it caused this, that's where the last place I saw this particular right come up. Um, and uh, I can imagine how difficult it is uh, with the for the kids with the parents not being able to reach some sort of an accord uh, in that in that situation. So you already touched on this a little bit, but I think it's worth going back and talking about it a little bit more specifically. The duty to provide information to the other side. I see this come up a lot as a problem where people don't, especially when they have, they have a lot of conflict, they can't communicate well with the other side. Every time they do give information, it's a problem. And so they don't want to provide information. And, and I think the you know standard language is written in such a way that it's supposed to tell people what to do. But I don't know that it really does a very good job of that. I, I agree. Uh, I think that where uh, what the code does a good job of is is making sure the parents understand that they have specific some things that are very specific that you have to tell the other parent about, which is cohabitating with someone who's a registered sex offender. Um, there are notice provisions in that, as well as someone who's the subject of a protective order, uh, or a parent residing or being around someone who is, and this is fairly new, obviously, or, or apparently, but apparently, excuse me. And, and so those are incredibly important. I mean, uh, and I have seen this come up where someone uh, resides with a sex offender. It's one of the searches that we do whenever we're staffing a case uh, and there's a paramour on the other side or even my client's paramour. Um, it's probably come up a handful of times in the last 14 or 15 years. Uh, but but I think that, that is, that's information that parents need, no matter what you think about the other parent. These are your kids, and so you should definitely have the duty to to disclose that information and have the right to receive it for sure. One of the examples of of something that I've had a parent not want to disclose is related to okay, you know, Johnny has a an annual checkup at the pediatrician, and they don't want to tell the other side about it because they don't want the other side to show up and cause a problem, and then they don't want to tell the other side that it happened because they don't want to cause a problem for not telling them to begin with. When there was nothing particularly noteworthy about the appointment, it was just a checkup, everything was fine, and they say, well, that's not significant information. What would you tell a person that was having that issue? I think that um, anytime I think, anytime a child goes to the doctor, that's significant. If a child has a, has a runny nose and you're, or a, a low-grade fever and you're giving them uh, Motrin or what have you, now, is that significant? I think that's probably a different story. But, uh, I mean, I, I go to all of my kids' doctor's appointments, and I like to know what the progress is. If we're talking about a well-child checkup and what the growth is, and, and, and I think that, that uh, I think the parents should do that if they can. Um, and uh, the parent who's concealing that information or what happens there, I, I think that's probably an indicator of a much bigger problem, uh, usually. And uh, uh, but but it's man, like I said it a while ago, and I say it, I, I, I say it tongue in cheek, but it's unfortunately true that uh, parents just when they can't get along, it, it affects their kids, and and it's um, parents. There are certain things in life that you should do together. 
for your children and medical care and medical treatment and their education are, are at the top of that list in my opinion. I agree 100%. So let's go through some of the rights and duties individually that we see all the time, obviously, in our practices, but what some of the problems are and what some of the issues are that maybe we can help fix in how we're crafting orders. The first one, and I think this is one of probably the most highly litigated among the rights and duties, is the right to designate the primary residence. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So this is what, uh, you know, in, in Texas uh, family law jurisprudence, we don't use the term custody. Um, we use the term conservatorship, but this is what people call custody. This is what I always tell um, uh, potential clients that come in my office is that you don't want custody. You want the right to know where uh, Junior is going to lay his head down at night most of the time. And so I agree with you. It's, it's absolutely the most litigated um, uh, rights in, in, in our world in custody litigation. And so, and it's also further complicated even more recently now by uh, what that looks like with a geographical restriction. And what we're talking about is, like I said, what does KLA head at most of the time? And what does that look like um, outside of what does the possession schedule looks like? It all, it all ties in and runs in together. Uh, but uh, and again, complicated by the geographical restriction uh, with, uh, you know, now it's uh, under 50 miles, 50 to 100 miles, and then over 100 miles. That, that is what people call custody. This episode of the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm, providing family law appellate representation for non-parent custody cases, jurisdictional issues, property division, standing, conservatorship, possession and access, termination, parental rights, and grandparent access. For more information, visit draperfirm.com or call 469-715-6801. So another one that can cause some um, disputes is the right to consent to invasive procedures. What constitutes invasive? So I think that that is still subject to interpretation. And uh, uh, prior to this this uh, podcast with you today, um, uh, I've asked that question. We've researched it some. I don't think there's an absolute clear cut answer. The Health and Safety Code gives a definition. Uh, it's kind of long. Uh, but uh, I've seen some some courts of appeals that kind of uh, that, that that cite this obviously, and it's an invasive procedure means a surgical entry into tissues, cavities, or organs, or repair of major trauma, traumatic injuries associated with any of the following: operating or or delivery room, emergency department, cardiac catheterization, vaginal cesarean delivery, the manipulation, cutting, removal of oral or perioral. I'll say that word tissues, including tube structure and things like that, and so. Um, I have described this as if it pierces the skin or if it pierces the body cavity. And so, uh, but I, it's certainly subject to interpretation. I have a case, I had a case where the, one of the parents uh, believed that, a, that a, a young child, a three or four year old child uh, was constipated a lot and was given that child a uh, suppository. Is that an invasive procedure? Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. And of course the big one, Right since March of 2020 and thereafter is, is COVID and COVID shots and this obviously you've seen litigated a lot um, and I don't I don't think that there's a bright line rule for it uh, I, you know I I filed temporary restraining orders and I've had some judges grant them and go in and have a hearing about whether or not the kids should get you know have, have the vaccination 
I, I have litigated the issue and had judges, I've had them both ways. I think right now it's just been depending on who your prior fact is uh, on that issue. But if you look at the, I think if you look at the definitions on the health and safety code, uh, does a vaccination, uh, is it a surgical entry into tissues, cavities, or organs? I think it is, but uh, you know, the, uh, I've also litigated dental work and uh, tubes and ears and, and things like that. And so, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, still a lot of law left to be made by the courts of appeals involving uh, this particular right. Yeah, I agree. And with the way it currently is, judges have so much discretion. So really, when parents can't agree, you know, should we get our kid the COVID vaccine? Mom says yes, dad says no. It's how does your judge feel about it? And that's what's going to happen. And I I don't think that's right. I I agree. Some standardization of that would be most helpful uh, uh, to parents in Texas and and, and to us and and, and our ability to try to make uh, help our clients make good decisions about these things. So another one we see a lot is the right to consent to psychological and psychiatric treatment. Talk to us about that one. Sure. I, uh, you know, I, so I mentioned I have a psychology degree. Um, I, I always say that it's a bachelor's degree, so it qualifies me for nothing in the psychological world, except that it gives me kind of a, a social minded approach to social science of minded approach to things. I think I never could have guessed as a as a young man and prior to becoming an attorney how often uh, kids would see counselors uh, and uh, therapists and, and need psychotropic medication. And then and in our world, I don't know about you, but uh, it's probably one out of every three cases that I have that kids are in counseling or need uh, you know they have uh, problems like ADHD and things like that and. It's specifically ADHD and the medicating of the same core therapy, uh, that comes up quite a bit. Do we do we use that at all or do we not? Or do we use some sort of counseling or therapy? Um, it, it does come up a fair bit. And, and so I, I think that's uh, it. whenever you have a child's mental health at issue and you have parents who are warring with each other, um, I think the child just suffers um, in, the, in my experience and what I've seen whenever the parents get either can't make those decisions or don't have a, a vehicle by which to, uh, which to come to a resolution. And so with both invasive medical and, you know, right to consent to psychological and psychiatric treatment, a lot of times what we see people putting in orders is a, some sort of a tiebreaker. And what are your thoughts on including tiebreaker language versus giving the right to somebody exclusive? I know it's, it could be a deal breaker for people where we're not going to settle unless I'm included in this right. And I think that's why people include a tiebreaker. What do you think about that? So, yes, over the years, I think that my, the language that I've used in making tiebreakers has kind of evolved. Um, We used to say, you guys have the joint right to make this decision. And uh, the tiebreaker is the pediatrician. And I think, I think we probably even early on used to put that language. I kind of like that. It's evolved over the years. Now, and so let me back up. And so one of the things that, that I ended up seeing was I actually had a doctor call me one time and say, look, I know what this order says, uh, but I'm not doing this. I'm not making this decision. And so calls like that, um, as well as the uh, some other rights, like education, things like that, these third parties don't want to feel like that they have the, the responsibility to make the decision. But what these third parties do do all the time is they make recommendations. They take my kids to the pediatrician. I say, Doc, what do you think about the COVID, COVID vaccine? Doc said, I recommend that kid get COVID vaccine. 
But now when we write our orders, we say you will follow a doctor's recommendation. So now and, and make that an order. And so now the, the doctor's not in the middle so much as he's doing the exact same thing or he's doing the exact same thing she would have done before. But the parties are now bound by that. Uh, and so that's still currently how I draft uh, joint rights, the joint right to make medical decisions. So the other big right that we see litigated a lot, I would say, is the right to make educational decisions. And I've heard a lot of talk about why educational decisions need to be exclusive to one parent or the other and and problems there are if parents don't agree that a no from one parent means a no for all. Uh, Tell me what your thoughts are on that. So, and, and, you know, the right to make educational decisions um, includes a component of the choice of school um, and uh, it can, I should say, and it also ties into the geographical restriction. Uh, and I don't see this litigated too often uh, myself, like the choice of school, obviously, but not. So, for instance, if a child needs to be um, some of the, top, top, the topics that can come up or whether or not a child needs to participate in 504 services, whether or not. Um, they're going to be an AP or a dual credit classes, whether or not they're going to be held back, whether they're going to go to private school, public school, things like that. Those, those are some of the topics that I've seen litigated over the years or, or certainly that were at issue. And if you're doing joint managing conservatorship and, and you're uh, doing joint right, the joint right to make these educational decisions, then um, what I've done in the recent past over the past five or five or six, eight years, something like that is again, just like with doctors, uh, we used to say, you'll call the recommendation of the school counselor. Well, I had a case one time where that was what it said, and I subpoenaed the counselor from the school district, and she came down to the courthouse, and we were all standing in the in uh, the outside the courthouse, uh, the courtroom, and I said, okay, so what do you think? What's your recommendation? She goes, quite frankly, it doesn't even really matter what I think or what I say, uh, because we don't do that. You guys put this stuff in the order without ever talking to us, and what we do is we get together with this child's teacher, the principal on the campus and then and the counselor and anyone else that we think is important. When we put a committee together and with the child, depending on their age, obviously, then we make the decision. And so that was, that was a light bulb went off for me. I'm like, wait a minute. We're a whole bunch of really smart people. Otherwise, we wouldn't be lawyers. And so why in the world would we be putting this information in an order without having consulted uh, with these education uh, educational professionals? And so now... Um, uh, the language that we use is that the tiebreaker is uh, the school district by the formation of a committee as determined uh, by the campus administrator. And I've used a couple of different iterations of the language, but really trying to mimic what that counselor told me that day, um, because really, does, I, they don't. One person who's not a parent of a child doesn't want to have to make a decision that affects that child. That's the parent's job. And so um, I, I like the language. I've run it by some educators, and they appreciate. Uh, what, uh, what that as opposed to what we were doing before. So that's kind of where over the years my uh, drafting of that issue has gone. Well, I like that. I've, ne- I've never heard that way of drafting it before. So I think we'll we'll need to, I may need to borrow your language. Of course. <laughs> okay. So shifting gears a little bit to talk about enforceability related to rights and duties and powers. Are the rights and duties as written in the Texas Family Law Practice Manual enforceable? No. Why not? Very short answer, no. Um, And without getting too deep in the weeds about case law and ex parte, uh, slavin is how I've always pronounced it. I've heard people say slavin. 
which is the case from the from the late 60s. Um, when orders are, are drafted, uh, they are supposed to be drafted in such a way that they include they include order language or decretal language or command language, as we call it, such that a person is put on notice of uh, uh, of what their duties are, what the court uh, has told them they are supposed to do. Our rights and duties don't that they, they don't have any of that, and so um, there's the two main things that that we enforce, and, and the whole goal is to give teeth to what the court is saying you're supposed to be doing. And by teeth, I mean, can I get somebody in trouble because they didn't, because they went and got uh, a COVID vaccine uh, when it was a joint right and the other parent wasn't notified. Uh, how do I stop someone from doing that? And so right now, the way that the Texas Family Law Practice Manual uh, show, uh, states uh, that we draft these rights and duties, there, there aren't any teeth. And so obviously there are two things, two big things in family law that we certainly can do something about when someone's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You don't pay your child support, you can go to jail. You don't turn your kid over when you're supposed to or return your kid when you're supposed to, you can go to jail. And so my thought in, in, in developing this topic was, why, why don't why aren't the rights and duties that way too? If it's, if it's so important, if the trajectory of your child's life can be changed by an educational decision, eventually changed, why can't we stop someone from making those bad decisions? Now, the BLM dollars need to file a modification and ask for custody and, uh, you know, ask for the exclusive right. But once the damage is done, how, how do we how do we stop it from happening again? And so that was kind of uh, where, where I started with, uh, with this topic. And so putting that command language uh, or, or finding a way to put some sort of command language into the, the, these rights and duties um, is, is kind of where I ended up. And um, I, I think it's possible. Uh, I talked to some of the brightest minds in our world, and I, I think and there's some exam- I have some examples of that. Uh, and I don't know if we'll catch on or not, uh, but uh, I, I, I am, uh, shared this information with uh, the people who uh, draft the form book uh, and the committee that does that with the, through the state bar uh, family law section. And maybe it catches on. It's going to make our 40 some odd page divorce decrees, you know, 50 some odd pages probably because, um, you know, because we have to have that language. I think it has to be with every single right. There has to be a section that, that, that puts this command language in such that a court can hold someone in contempt uh, for not following, for not doing what they're supposed to do. You know, I never thought about it before, but in listening to you talk about that, you know, if I'm looking through the family law handbook or something for information on enforcements, it lists a section for enforcing child support and it lists a section for enforcing possession and access. And it doesn't talk about at all enforcing rights and duties. But if we don't have a way of enforcing, you know, if let's say I'm supposed to have joint decision making with regards to an invasive medical procedure and my ex I don't have an ex, but let's say hypothetically that I did. <laughs> My ex, you know, has gets the child surgery and doesn't tell me about it. If I can't enforce that, what good is it for me to have the right to begin with? Well, um, in a, uh, a, a hot topic, so to speak, right now in, in Texas family law and throughout the United States, uh, and people have very, very strong views uh, about this topic, but, you know, um, uh, transgender issues with children and uh, the decisions that go along with that, you know, uh, the operations and the the, the drugs that uh, can be given and administered to children. You know, there's a big case out from your area um, that has been litigated in, in the Court of Appeals now uh, that involves things like that. And so, I mean, if a parent makes a decision that's irreversible, 
what do we do with that under our current like the current state of our, our our rights and duties that are in the family code and the way that we're you know we're bound typically to draft them by the Texas family law practice manual if the parents can't agree on that topic and so I don't have all the answers uh, but uh, certainly something more could be done to dissuade people uh, parents uh, from making these important decisions without including the other parent or following the order. So with the way things are now, what can we do to make rights and duties more enforceable? So I propose essentially in broad strokes, what I propose is that we make them injunctions. We put uh, uh, language after each right and duty. So the joint right to make educational decisions, we give that to the parents jointly. Uh, We have a tiebreaker. I think it's important that you you have agreements and, and make them in writing. Um, and uh, then uh, you not only do you give the right to each parent, but you also enjoin them from making the decision without the other parent. So now if dad takes kid to the doctor and, and gets him a COVID test and mom didn't or COVID vaccination and mom didn't want him to have the COVID vaccination, well, now you're in a position to go to the court and get some relief, uh, just like you can on other rights or other things that you have in our orders. And so um, and if, if we're doing our jobs as litigators and, and as practitioners, we're telling our, our, our client, look, don't go do this because you can get thrown in jail. And, you know, I see a lot of orders from, from uh, other states and maybe you have two where the, the order just says, all right, mom gets legal custody and, and dad gets and mom gets physical custody. Dad's got some uh, some visitation rights that are that are you know, seem like they, they move back and forth. You know, the parents will agree what visitation is. What I appreciate about what we do in Texas is that we make our rights our, our, our uh, rights specific. We make our, our possessions schedule specific such that we can go and do what I'm talking about, which is go back to the court, get some relief, and and hopefully dissuade the other parent from not doing what they're not supposed to do. So I think an, an injunction, I think injunctions are the answer in this in this case. Yeah, and that's something I've never seen anybody put in an order. I've never seen anybody bring it up. But I think that's an excellent idea of how you make this enforceable and how you keep people from doing what you don't want, what you fear that they are going to do. And it may not be necessary in every situation when we have parents that are, you know, relatively amicable or seem able to co-parent. But when you have, you know, the parent who vehemently wants the COVID vaccine and the parent who vehemently does not, unless you have an injunction or something in there, there's probably not a lot of recourse when one parent acts contrary to what the other wants. Right. And I always tell my clients that if I can't stop someone from doing something, but uh, in, in the big instances with child support and possession and access, I can, I, there's something we can do about it. You know, uh, if it's possession and access, we can, we can get makeup time. You know, there's all, they're always subject to attorney's fees. And, 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 and these, as important as these rights and duties are, not having that same ability uh, when I started thinking about it, it seemed a little crazy to me because, I mean, these, I mean, I guess one could argue, uh, you know, minds could differ about whether or not the COVID vaccine issue is more important or less important than whether or not the kid gets to, you know, go to dad's for the weekend or, or something like that, or whether or not dad's paying half the, or mom's paying half the child support, not the whole child. So I, I think before that rights and duties were just something that we just all put in there, we just all did. And then the parents could take their order, wave it around to the doctor or to the school and, and, and you know, do what they uh, get, what they wanted. Uh, but as we've seen this, uh, these 
uh, rights be ignored or abused by parents, it, it seemed to me that there's something that we can do about it in the way we draft our orders. And maybe there's a better way. And if there is, I hope whoever sees this calls me and tells me about it. Uh, but this is this is the best that I could come up with. And, and some of the uh, brightest minds in the business that I've talked to uh, think that, uh, that this this might it might work. It might be a good way to do it. I haven't done it yet. But I know there were a couple of, when I did this presentation before, a couple of judges that were in the audience that took to me afterwards and were like, huh, okay, well, I, I can see where that might be important. So I, uh, I'll i be interested to try it for the first time and, and see what that looks like. So normally when we put an injunction in, we have that standard language, you know, because of the conduct of the party, this injunction is necessary. So let's assume that there hasn't been anything in the past where, you know, a parent acted directly contrary to what the other parent wanted. You know, there, there was no one parent taking the child to get an invasive medical procedure. There was, there was nothing like that in the past. We're just trying to protect it in the future or, you know, keep problems from happening. If both parties don't agree to include it, do you think a judge can in that situation? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I hadn't really thought about that uh, uh, that specific instance yet. I'm not sure. I, I know that. Um, well, it's, well, I mean, just I'm thinking out loud here. But if a judge says because of the conduct of the parties, maybe the judge sees that these two people cannot get along. They cannot co-parent. And if, if I think if that if, if that trier of fact decides that look, this is going to be a problem, and this I, and maybe it's their conduct in other ways that uh, makes the judge believe. So I think, some, I'm, like, again, I'm shooting from the hip here, but I think the judge probably could. Um, if you see mom and dad and, and and you see what they're doing to each other and um, burning their stuff on the front lawn and, and you know, slashing tires, all kinds of stuff, uh, I think you could use any conduct to, to make that determination. And so then we get into the whole, the waiver of uh, service and, you know, the, that kind of that stuff too, obviously. Uh, if it's agreed, then you can waive service, but um, service of writ, but uh, then you have to go through that part of it as well, um, which I, I can't think that I've ever served a writ on someone for injunctions because they either always agree to it or I guess we've just never come up, but that's just another step I think you have to take. Yeah, I think it's an interesting interesting thing to consider. And I guess by virtue of the fact that these people made it to a final trial to begin with, probably says they're not very capable of co-parenting and maybe therefore they are worthy of such an injunction in their final order. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I, I would assume that if this, if this catches on or any way, then, you know, you're going to have that issue litigated and, and appealed. And then, you know, we'll start, a, the courts of appeals will just start weighing in on these issues and we'll see what, how that goes. If it, like I said, if this kind of catches on, but I racked my brain trying to figure out um, the best way to to be able to put some teeth into this, and that's, that's what I've come up with. And so, it, uh, to me, it, it feel like it's my own little pet project. And so, I'll be interested to see if uh, if it catches on. Uh, the first time I go try to do it in a contested hearing, uh, what are, what a judge is going to say? Well, I, I certainly think it's an excellent idea, and I know that I intend to start trying to incorporate it by agreement in our orders because people are always, you know, we want to make everything enforceable when we can. We want to try and prevent problems in the future if we can with right. everything we're putting into an order. So if this is a way that we can create enforceability and we can hopefully prevent problems from occurring in the future, let's do it. 
Yeah, and, and I would I will tell my clients, and I will tell uh, I would hope that my colleagues will do the same. Whenever we're drafting these orders, uh, I would say, look, this is what this says, and just like if you don't pay your child support or you don't take Junior back to to Dad, you could go to jail for doing something like this. And and uh, I think that if we if we educate our clients early on about that uh, that type of stuff, I, I think that especially the high conflict cases, they'll they'll appreciate the fact that there's uh, there's a, a, a way to to get some redress. If these orders are being followed, now is there a chance that it could be over litigated? Yes, of course. But there's a balance in there somewhere. I mean, everything's subject to litigation, but there's a balance somewhere. I think, and, and I really think that it will uh, assist uh, parents in uh, making sure that what they agreed to is what's being followed, or what a judge orders is what's being followed. Well, I like it. So we're just about out of time, but one question I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast is if you could give one piece of advice to young family lawyers, what would it be? Know your rules. Um, stay uh, stay on top of, of uh, court of appeals opinions and, and Supreme Court opinions. Uh, our practice shifts so much uh, on what, what our courts of appeals say, and, and there's so many different issues in family law. Know your statutes, stay up on the legislation, the legislative changes, and, and do your research. Um, have a background knowledge of everything and, and just continue to stay up on it. There are lots of resources throughout the state for the most up-to-date information regarding legislation and case law and find them and read them. Um, I mean, if you look back to, you know, 2013, we had Enrique Stephanie Lee and what that did to, to our practice and and all of the the, the projects that came out of that. So I educate yourself. Go try to take the board certification test. Uh, get you know get your experience. I think that that's why I personally think it's vitally important. Some people and some of my colleagues have no desire to do it, don't want to do it, don't think it matters. Um, but I guarantee you that I am a better lawyer because I spent the time and effort to go educate myself and and sit down and go take yet another exam. And I thought that I was only going to take one more. So educate yourself. That that's the best advice I can. I always say that lawyers who come out of law school, no, they know more law at that moment than they ever will in the rest of their life. I know I did. Um, but as you know, I know I know a whole lot, a, a little bit about a whole lot when I graduated law school and took the bar exam. And if you're if you're not a general practitioner and you're focusing just on family law, well, treat that as a job and educate yourself. So where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you? Uh, if you want to learn more about me, uh, my, my website, uh, jenkinsoncayman.com. Um, I always tell people when they're asking for my office numbers, I'm not hard to find. You can Google me. You put Adam Dietrich, lawyer, convo, and you're going to find um, uh, lots of information about me. Um, I am a member of several different committees for the state bar and, and uh, as well as some other committees that and organizations that help uh, try to advance advance our um, drafting our legislation things like that and so uh that's that's best place to find just google me well thank you so much for joining us today uh, for our listeners if you enjoyed this podcast take a second to leave us a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes the texas family law insiders podcast is sponsored by the draper law firm We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.